Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider one of our few remaining untamed frontiers, the high seas. What's life like for the people who inhabit the hidden world of our ungoverned oceans? And what are the challenges that have to be overcome in order to bring their stories to light? Full credit goes to Pamela Paul, the editor of the New York Times Book Review, for unwittingly giving us the idea for this episode. I was listening to the book review podcast recently, and she mentioned that she'd been reading a book by Ian Urbina called The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. This was her take. I'm just going to say flat out that this is one of the best narrative nonfiction books by a journalist I have ever read. The book feels very journalistically responsible. There's no exaggeration. If anything, it is very low key. And yet, for a nonfiction book, I found it to be one of the most page-turnery books I have read in a long time. I stayed up late reading. I woke up early to read. I was reading in the middle of the night. Well, I mean, obviously, after I heard that, you know, I got the book and started hoping that we would be able to talk to Ian on Book Dreams. And what a conversation we ended up having. Yes. It was full of details about worlds that are too often concealed and too little understood. And it took a huge unexpected turn that, like the rest of the interview, was startling and meaningful, memorable and revelatory. Yes, this is a conversation that's going to stay with me for a long, long time. Ian's reporting is ongoing. He's working with the team now, and I hope we have a chance to speak with him again. He spent roughly 17 years as a staff reporter for the New York Times. He's received various journalism awards, including a Pulitzer Prize, a George Polk Award, and an Emmy nomination. His New York Times bestselling book, The Outlaw Ocean, is based on five years of reporting, much of it offshore, exploring lawlessness on the high seas. Ian is now director of The Outlaw Ocean Project, a nonprofit journalism organization based in Washington, D.C., that produces investigative stories about human rights, environment, and labor concerns on the two-thirds of the planet covered by water. Ian's book tells stories based on reporting that he did in various locations across the seas. He often had to overcome an astonishing number of hurdles just to get to the ship at the heart of the story. We started by asking him about the difficulties he encountered trying to reach a sea shepherd ship as it went after a fishing vessel called the Thunder. Here's what he said. This was a story that summed up as the chase of the thunder. And the thunder was this notorious vessel that had been engaged in illegal fishing for nearly a decade to such a degree that the thunder, which is a toothfish vessel or Patagonian sea bass, as it's called on restaurant menus, had been added to Interpol's purple list. Interpol's purple list is a arrest on site list. And essentially it means if this ship comes into your port, you should stop them. Mm -hmm. And the Thunder was on that list and topped the list because for a decade it had illegally fished to the estimated sum of $67 million in revenue. 
The problem, though, with the Thunder, with the Purple List, and to some degree with the Outlaw Ocean writ large, is that um, no one was really in a position to conduct the arrest. You know, no government really wanted to take it on themselves to deal with the headache or the investigation or the cost from a law enforcement point of view of finding, chasing, and locking down the Thunder. So the Thunder sort of just was hiding in plain sight, doing its nefarious deeds, and no one was really doing anything about it. Along came Sea Shepherd, which is this self-described vigilante ocean conservation group that has a whole fleet of vessels. And they kind of had grown frustrated with the lack of enforcement of these very rules and laws and decided they were going to find the Thunder and chase it and really embarrass the world and the relevant governments and the Thunder itself around this notion of a repeat offender that's allowed to get away. So that's what Sea Shepherd did. They figured out where the Thunder was going. They found the Thunder nets in Antarctic waters and the Southern Ocean, and they began chasing it. And that began the longest, supposedly the longest law enforcement chase in nautical history. It lasted 110 days and span thousands of miles, tens of thousands of miles. So I had heard about this chase when it was midway through and two Sea Shepherd huge Navy order vessels were shadowing the thunder and kind of raising a clamor about it. And it just struck me as like such a perfect opportunity to highlight the many different extra legal activities that occur on the high seas. So I got in touch with Sea Shepherd and sort of harassed them until they acquiesced to the concept of me getting on board and reporting about this mission they were on. And um, then the challenge was fine, 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 stop calling us. You can come on board, but the only way you can come on board is you have to be at these certain coordinates on this certain time frame, and we're not going to wait for you because we're in the middle of an international chase and we can't really uh, dawdle. We can't really wait to pick up some reporter. They were like, look, you've got to be at these coordinates off the coast of Ghana on this date between these hours and sit tight there and we will send someone to get you. And by the way, you need to be there in what amounted to about three days. Mm -hmm. And this was the holiday seasons. And so I had an incredible sprint on my hand. I didn't have any ride set up in Ghana. I didn't have a visa. I didn't have any plan and didn't even have a photographer that I could get into position in time to come with me. So it became an insane scramble. Even once I got to Ghana within 24 hours and kind of convinced the right figures to take me out to these coordinates to get mysteriously picked up by these folks that the Ghanaians didn't know a whole lot about and were a bit nervous regarding. And I found some port police of the main port in Accra. Um, And once we pulled off that coup of getting them to agree to take us out, that's when the challenge is actually even just started, you know, because we went out to sea and all sorts of calamity befell us and Mm -hmm. we ended up not making it to our location and the ship engine died and we were in real peril for a while and there was a near mutiny and this was all in the course of 12 hours when I was dumped back on shore and I only had about eight more hours to get to the coordinates and I didn't have a boat anymore and I had some pissed off Ghanaian port officials. 
And that's when we had to go to plan B, you know, and uh, find some fishermen. So all to say that just the prospect of getting on the vessel in that case was a marathon. Yeah. And can I just say for listeners who haven't read the book, you know, he just a yada, 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 you know, like the mutiny, the whatever, uh, like the pages of the book will tell you riveting details about all of the really frightening things that happened in those moments right before you went back to land. And yes. So you mentioned a couple of the factors that make it so hard to govern the oceans, but I'm wondering if you can give us a bigger picture. Uh, what are some of the things that make the oceans so hard to govern? I think um, one factor boils down to geography. So it is a sprawling space and simply by dint of its massive expanse, the ability to police it becomes very costly, very slow. And as a result, most countries can't afford to even police their own waters, to say nothing about the high seas, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the 13 or 200 mile mark from shore, you're in international waters, which opens up a whole new realm, which is not geography per se, but jurisdiction. That realm, that high seas realm is a shared space, not unlike the North and South Pole or the atmosphere or outer space. These are these interesting realms that belong to everyone and no one, and they're sort of meant to be publicly accessible. But the dark, unfortunate reality is they often get exploited more than protected because everyone can take from them, but not anyone can protect them. So I think one is geography, two is jurisdiction, and then three is demographics. So the victims of these crimes, whether it's murder with impunity or human trafficking, these are just the human crimes, right? Arms trafficking or the marine environmental crimes, dumping of waste and oil, unsustainable, illegal or over legal fishing, ocean plastic, all these are environmental issues. All these have as their victims, in the one hand, humans, and the other hand, marine life and the space, that are uh, tend to be without a lobby, without lawyers, mm -hmm. without revenue, without a voice. And so on the human side, most of the victims of these crimes that I'm focused on are developing nation deckhands, you know, largely from Indonesia and Taiwan and Ghana and Philippines. And they are quite frequently deeply poor, often small villager, you know, small village folk who haven't a lot of savvy with dealing with sketchy manning agencies and, and players that might take advantage of them. A good portion are illiterate, have never been abroad before. This is a chance to make some seemingly uh, and quite actually probably in theory better money than they could ever earn at home. But they often are trafficked, so their passports taken away, often are bamboozled, so they're told that they're going to be paid one thing, but what they aren't told are all the hidden costs, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a demographic of folk who are easily abused, and when things go wrong, they don't have access to lawyers or advocates or newspapers, and so these crimes go unpunished. And same thing with the ocean as a victim itself, the marine life. There's a lot more of a lobby, environmental lobby around on-land issues, you know, koalas and elephants and rhinos than shrimp, mm -hmm. partially because they're not cuddly, partially because they're so far away. They're so foreign from us as humans. There are a lot of reasons. We call it seafood. 
Right. Right. So even in the definitional nature of the animal is called a thing that we consume, <laughs> we already have a epistemological problem. So for all these reasons, it makes for a, a place that's woefully underprotected. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, the conditions for workers on fishing boats are often unfathomably horrifying. And your book conveys so well that there are many complicated reasons for that and seemingly no good solutions. Can you tell us about Errol Andrade and what his experience and its aftermath show about labor conditions and justice for workers at sea? You know, Errol Andrade was in many ways a textbook pawn. He was a human with a name and a backstory and aspirations, but he was also symbolic of a very quintessential type of person that gets taken advantage of in a very textbook rendering of human trafficking as it specifically plays out in the ocean space. So in the case of Aaron Andrade, he was a Filipino young man from a small village called Calibo, and he got word by word of mouth that there was decent work to be had, decent earnings to be made if the right introduction was made through a manning agency, which is a labor broker, a labor agency that helps find jobs. And um, that for X amount of dollars per month, he would sign a contract to be working on a distant water fishing vessel that would probably stay at sea for a year straight Wages would be mailed home, would be electronically dispersed back to shore to his family. He would work the job and he'd come back home having earned something that would have taken him years to earn if he just, you know, cobbled together an existence in his village. To jump to the end of the story, Errol Andrade died a pretty brutal, awful and mysterious death on board of one of these vessels. And what made his story illustrative was many things. One was just the nature of the scheme, the contractual scheme that really is exploitative and illegal and unethical, whereby villagers just like Andrade get looped into these contracts that are deeply misleading in terms of what they will earn and what their rights are. They have to pay upfront freeze. You know, in Errol Andrade's case, he had to borrow money from local relatives to pay the upfront cost to the agency that then would cover his flight from his village to Manila. Then he flies from there to Singapore, where he's held in an apartment and not allowed to leave while he's waiting to be assigned a vessel in pretty prison-like conditions where there's good reason to believe sexual abuse was occurring in the lockdown of that apartment, which was above the manning agency office. Ultimately, he gets dispatched to a ship and off he goes. And, you know, the conditions on the vessel itself are utterly brutal, according to other deckhands who worked alongside with him. Beatings were not uncommon. 20-hour days were not uncommon. You know, rats, roaches, no medicine, subpar sleeping conditions. And then wages that were promised to be X, but, you know, when the deductions roll in, it's like one quarter of X that they're actually making. So this is all that adds up before Aaron Dry dies. 
Andrade dies for reasons that are not entirely clear. His body gets put in the freezer and eventually brought back to shore. He's missing, you know, organs. He's got indications of crush injuries. The note that is pinned by the captain to Aaron Andrade's casket, you know, says that he died in his sleep and uh, gives the impression that this was an innocent, you know, kind of guy got sick and died. The autopsy that's first done in port sort of whitewashes the situation. The family and a lawyer get a second autopsy done. That's when all sorts of pretty worrisome things are revealed, such as the missing organs and the crush marks and the bruises and all that. And it seems pretty clear that he probably died under foul play. And the family had to work incredibly hard to get any even engagement from the Manning Agency, which is this middleman entity that's essentially a P.O. box for all intents and purposes and claims to be representing the fishing company in the recruitment of workers, the payment of workers, the what do we do if they need to be flown home because they got sick part of workers. All those logistics are handled by the Manning Agency. Why? Well, it's cheaper for the fishing company not to have to deal with that headache, but also it's plausible deniability. If something goes wrong, the fishing company, which has the deep pockets, can shrug and say, hey, look, we didn't hire that guy. We subcontracted to this agency. So if you have questions about what happened to him, take it up with them. And the Manning Agency's have no accountability, they disappear overnight, and they have no brand that can be dinged by a bad press article in the New York Times because no one knows who they are, doesn't really matter. The fishing company, you know, bumblebee of the sea that might be getting the tuna coming off that vessel, well, they need to care if they end up on the front page of the New York Times. But the, the way the whole industry is structured is so as to insulate brand and deep pockets from liability and harm and duty. Hmm. Yeah. Um, in 2014, a source sent you a cell phone video of men on fishing vessels shooting and gruesomely murdering unarmed men floating in the water near the vessels. In the chapter in your book in which you describe this video and your efforts to piece together the full story of what happened, you write, the ocean is not the place to go hunting for good guy versus bad guy narratives. Why not? And what did you learn as you investigated? Well, what I learned on the most fundamental level that makes that, you know, comment true is that things are very murky and hard to discern with any certainty when it comes to this far off place, you know, Bodies are dumped and they're eaten at the seafloor. So evidence for law enforcement to do autopsies disappears. You know, there are no skid marks on the ocean. On the ocean, everything is far away. It happens en route, often in this international realm where there are not real obligations of record keeping. So things become super murky for an investigative reporter or more relevantly an insurance investigator or an Interpol investigator or what have you, law enforcement. What that means is that when you think that a culprit is just a culprit, you might want to think twice because someone who was involved in a violent crime against someone else might also be acting under orders of the guy above him 
And that same person holding the gun may have been um, abused and had his life threatened only a month before that if he ever bucked orders again, he would disappear. And so while not wanting to apologize for the pretty carnal bloodshed that that footage that you mentioned shows, I guess I grew to be a little bit careful not to assume I knew who the culprits were and what preceded their doing what the video shows. Ian did investigate that video for many years. He notes that it was a far clearer example of outright murder than what's usually seen at sea. There was no possibility for those shooters to argue self-defense. His reporting ultimately resulted in the identification of the captain who ordered the shooting from private security guards on that ship, and it contributed significantly to the prosecution and sentencing of that same captain, who's been sentenced to 26 years in jail. But even with a clear-cut case of murder caught on video, it took years of dedicated investigation by a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist to yield any justice. When you think about all of the cases involving men like Errol Andrade, too, and the Manning agencies that disappear and the second autopsies that don't get done, the scope of the problem is just staggering. And so is the scope of the greed of the people who take advantage of those who are so in need that they end up on those ships. The scope of the desperation, the scope of the exploitation, it all seems impossible to tackle. But we we certainly can't tackle it if we don't know about it and see it and understand it. It's amazing to me there was no one covering this beat at the New York Times before Ian persuaded them to let him do a series of articles about it. And what a beat. We're talking about two-thirds of the surface of the Earth. Ian's given us the start of a sense of how hard it can be to cover one ship. We really encourage you to read the book for all of the eye-opening details. We're almost at the part of the interview where things go in an unexpected direction. Because we were so focused on Ian's book, what with our being book dreams, and this particular book being so chock full of fascinating information, we neglected to pay sufficient attention to what happened after the publication of the book. Okay, here we go. At one point, you write in the book, and I'm going to quote you here, my mother was a consummate warrior, and when I was home, she always questioned me where I planned to go next. Then she would suggest that I make the next trip my last one. So in the lead up to my trip to Somalia, I kept my plans vague in my conversations with her. Somewhere in East Africa, I would say. I'm starting in Kenya. Then I'll go around the region from there. It wasn't a lie, just not the full truth. The fact of the matter was that there was no way to write a book about lawlessness at sea and not go to Somalia. So it turns out your mother would have been right to worry about you in Somalia and um, if she had known what was going to happen. Why is Somalia key to a book about ocean lawlessness? And for people who haven't read the book, what happened to you there? Well, and and I'll I'll digress and then you can cut it out if you want. But Mm -hmm. it's a very timely question. Um, are you both familiar with the recent piece in the New Yorker in Libya? No, no. Mm-mm. Well, we, we published a piece in the New Yorker about an investigation we were doing in Libya during which I was taken captive by a militia and very severely abused, um, oh my God. uh, and hospital. And we were, it was me and my team, we were disappeared into a prison 
I was, you know, my ribs broken, my kidney, you know, damaged and held in solitary confinement for seven days until the U.S. State Department um, applied enough pressure. But it was a near death and brutal experience that almost got us killed way more so than Somalia. And so it's a timely question because we had kept it quiet. We were eventually rescued and taken out of the country. And then we produced this piece that ran in December in the New Yorker. But, you know, my tongue in cheek tone in the book becomes a little bit less um, cocky vis-a-vis my mom considering what happened in the last six months. But nonetheless, it, it is an occupational hazard, I think, with this subject line. If, if you really are committed to doing stories that few others are doing, you're probably going to have to go to places that few others are going and for good reason. Now, to your question, you know, Somalia and specifically the Horn of Africa, the Horn of Somalia, this sort of semi-autonomous state called Puntland, is kind of this central player in so many different sketchy and nefarious things that happen offshore. There's a drug called COT, which is very common. It's sort of an amphetamine, very popular in Kenya and Yemen and and this part of the world. You chew it, it's a leaf. It has almost like a cocaine-like effect. It's very addictive and very widespread. I mean, the COT distribution trade hugely launches out of Puntland. And so you have this very fascinating drug that comes through there and is largely by boat disseminated. You also have a lot of the main Captain Phillips style pirates. Mm -hmm. They've died down now, but they're not entirely gone. But at 2008, 2009, they're at their height. And a lot of them were launching and running their operations from Puntland and hitting a lot of ships from there. So you have that other sort of lawlessness category from this state. And then you also have a civil war going on in Yemen, and a lot of arms and fighters are moving back and forth between Africa and specifically launching from Somalia because it's the closest point to Yemen, and, and Puntland is that closest point. So you have that whole category of really sketchy, complicated things going on. And don't forget, Somalia has, I think, the longest coastline of any country on continental Africa. And so it just seems like a really essential place to go if you're going to do this kind of reporting. And Puntland in particular is the place to go. And we actually went in hoping to tell a good news story about a rare instance in which the Somali federal government had done something smart and protective and brave, collaborating with Kenya to make an arrest. But when we got there, that story went upside down and we got in some dodgy situations. I, I'm just having tremendous cognitive dis- dissonance right now. First, I, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry we didn't know about it so that we could have asked you yeah. in a more sensitive way about it. I, I hope that at least physically you're you're feeling better from, from what happened. No, no, I'm fine. The other really weird thing that's in my mind right now is I'm remembering visiting a cot market in Ethiopia in Harar, which is a city all the way east in Ethiopia in 2006, which was... A totally delightful, it was like being at a farmer's market. There were mothers with their babies on their backs. People were smiling. There were, you know, giant piles of this green leaf and everybody was sort of happily exchanging it. And the contrast between that market and what you describe is head spinning. Yeah, cod is a funny thing. And someday I would like to really get 
more fluent on it. But the sense I got from the folks I talked to is that the further inland you get, the more normalized consumption and commerce becomes. The closer to shore you get, the more it's mixed with other illicit traffic, arms, humans, etc. And in some countries, especially some states and some countries that are devoutly Muslim, there are strict prohibitions on it that make it even more charged. So in Kenya, we visited some rural cot commerce sheds and such, and it wasn't a big deal when we filmed them. And then when we went to Somaliland, which is a subsidiary kind of autonomous state within Somalia, there's not a whole lot of terrorism or, or really acute violence in Somaliland. It's a sort of oasis. And um, we filmed the cop market. And we almost got lynched. You know, mm-hmm. we had to literally run to our cars because the sensitivity around the addiction and the sort of social shame of um, cot consumption there was intense. So it, it really varies. Mm-hmm. Can, do you mind if I ask just a few questions about what happened in Lydia? Sure. I guess I'm wondering... Um, can you tell us a little bit about why? Um, what happened there? You mean? Yeah, just a little bit about it. And then, did they know? Did they know that you were on board in particular? Were they trying to target mm. you? And also, I'll just ask this now because I'm particularly interested in this. You know, how do you come back from that and continue to do the kind of reporting that you do, which I assume, maybe wrongly, that you intend to continue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll give you the short, fast version of Libya. So we went to Libya to take a look at the EU's role in what is unequivocally a crime against humanity, which is essentially a Trump-like wall that has been erected de facto across the Mediterranean, where the EU is, has created and funded the Libyan Coast Guard and is using Frontex, which is the EU's border agency, to police the stopping of migrants arriving to Europe. And what they're doing there is they're using the Libyan Coast Guard to capture the migrants before they reach Italy or Greece or Spain and Malta and turn them back and send them to a war zone, which is a failed state, which is Libya. Mm -hmm. And in Libya, there's a grid of on-land, brutal, awful, horrific detention centers where all the migrants are taken. And what we wanted to do is tell that story about the EU's role in having created this horrific situation. So we had two fronts, an at-sea and an on-land front of reporting. I had a team and was running the on-land part because Libya is a very difficult place to report on land, even in Tripoli itself, if you don't even go into the south where the war is raging. But the city itself is militia-run, lots of different militias. There are two different governments that divide the north of Libya that don't recognize each other. It's just really dodgy. And you don't get in the country as a journalist without permission, and you don't move around the city even without armed security. Our goal was to go there, and we were very open about it. We had a journalist visa, etc., was to report on these detention centers and really investigate sort of Synecdoche style the murder of one climate migrant in particular, Ali Ukande, in the worst of the detention centers, a place called Al-Mabani. So we went there and that was our mission. We put a my videographer, a guy named Ed U, on a ship that was doing the at-sea part on an embed with Doctors Without Borders. And they were scooping up migrants in this cat and mouse game where Doctors Without Borders is out on the international water side of things. 
and the migrants that can slip by the Libyan Coast Guard and make it out there really quickly get scooped up by doctors at borders and brought to a port of safety, i.e. in Europe. The folks who are caught by the Libyan Coast Guard instead get brought back to land and put in this hell, you know, these centers. I had a team of three other reporters, three other staff with me, an editor, a videographer, and a doc film doc filmmaker who's making a doc film about the work I do. We were all there reporting on Aliu and having incredible success. And on the seventh day, actually the night before we were due to leave, eight o'clock at night, I stayed at the hotel because I had just too much work to do and was uh, actually on the cell phone with my wife debriefing. Um, the other three went with armed security and a convoy to restaurant, knock on the door, my hotel door, um, 12 armed men come in, gun to head, put me on the floor, hood me, um, beat me for quite a while, break some ribs, do lots of damage, turn the room, um, take me barefoot hooded um, to a, a marked car, drag me through the hotel lobby, put me in the car, take me to secret, secret prison. The other three similarly hit by the same militia, which was a militia that's a part of the federal government. It's officially called the Libyan Intelligence Service. So it's the secret police, but everything is militia run and this militia is Al-Nawasi. And so the same militia and uh, agency struck our other team members in the middle of an intersection and hit them in brought, you know, at eight o'clock at night, pulled the driver, the, the security guy out of the car, pistol whipped in the middle of the intersection, beat him pretty bad, hooded the other three and uh, took them uh, to the same prison and secret site, which happened to be in the port of Tripoli, and kept us there. Uh, so um, my wife had heard the beating, and um, we had a, a sort of an emergency plan for if anything went down. You know, the captivity part was awful and the scariest thing I've ever lived through, and, you know, every day taken out of the cell and interrogated intensely and, you know, all the standard bad stuff that goes with that. Meanwhile, my wife and the wife of my editor who was with me, these two women essentially, and my whole staff were working an intense campaign to figure out where we had gotten taken, who had us and what to do about it. And we got lots of help from John Kerry and Leo DiCaprio and lots of key players who swung into motion because they're longtime supporters of the journalism I do, and they applied pressure and the State Department did incredible work and ultimately got us handed over and evacuated from the country. Mm -hmm. And how does this kind of an experience, you know, affect you as you think about future reporting? Well, I have no intention of going back to Libya anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm a convicted spy. <laughs> I had to sign, uh, you know, 20 page of Arabic document that I was not told what it said. And I had a gun at my head to sign it. And so did my colleagues. So we, we will never go back there, obviously. But, um, you know, the stuff that had happened, like in Somalia and Borneo, and some, some really scary things that happened before um, were scary. And, they, and I tried to learn from them, mm. think about what mistakes I made, think about what's simply inevitable. But usually it all had the some effect of lessons learned plus doubling down on resolve to do this journalism because... I'm even less inclined to stop doing it when I see how difficult and rare and important it is because mm -hmm. those sorts of folks need light shed on them. Um, Libya rattled me 
deeper than anything before. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had to really, you know, I had you know, some go to the hospital when I got back and, you know, had to really kind of get my bearings. And, but we then were back up and running in a matter of weeks and produced what I think is the proudest piece of journalism I've produced in my life is the piece that we just put out in December and it's having huge, huge impact um, globally. I have to say incredible was David Remnick and the New Yorker in terms of how they handled the whole thing, the support they give in, gave in so many different ways. They doubled down as well and said, no, 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 not only are we going to run the story, but we're going to do an even better job. And that was so reassuring that they had that kind of journalistic sense of mission and would not be deterred by this attempt to squelch us. And ultimately, you know, what these guys were most upset about was our journalism. You know, they didn't like what we were going to be focused on and wanted to um, put an end to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, normally we end our interviews by thanking you for coming on Book Dreams, but I feel the need to thank you for for the sake of on behalf of the world for the work that you do generally. It's quite remarkable. I would throw in one thing and you may not have time to use it, but I would say that even talking about Libya or talking about Ghana or talking about any of these things, Mm -hmm. the adversity and risk that I face or my team face in reporting these things pales, literally quite fully pales in comparison to what the people we're covering are facing. And so Mm -hmm. I always try to just genuinely point that out. Like even in Libya, introducing our captivity felt risky because we're writing about migrants who are being held captive, tortured, and sometimes killed, and they're being held for a year. We lasted eight days before we were rescued. And so as awful as what we went through was, the thing that we're covering and the people, what's happening to them is so much worse that I appreciate what you're saying, but I would redirect and say the bravery and will to survive of the people we're writing about is really impressive. Right. Can I just pivot perhaps, I don't know if this is callously, Mm -hmm. it certainly feels frivolous in comparison to what you just said, but I do think it's sort of interesting about human psychology, because this is true in your book as well, right? You're writing about just these horrible conditions and you're weaving in some of the difficulties that you faced reporting them. And you do it with a lot of sensitivity, right? You don't, it's clear that you're not trying to take away from, you're not trying to distract or make yourself the superhero, but there is something about the reader's psychology. There's like this very important bridge almost of sort of I'm here safe and What's happening to these folks is so mind-bogglingly horrible that the connective tissue of Hmm. your difficulties getting to the boat or whatever brings us there too. Now, this Mm -hmm. is absurd in the sense Mm -hmm. of Libya. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that you provided some kind of function by going through the terrible things that you did. It was terrible, and I wish it hadn't happened. Um, But I I do think that there is an incredibly important function, not just in your being the journalist who brings it to light, but also that there's a kind of a translation Mm -hmm. in experience that's important. No, you put it better than I could have. You know, when I was writing the book, I had really intense struggle with my agent and my editor at Knopf 
on this very matter because I wanted to write it without me present. And they were constantly pushing the opposite direction. And we met in the middle. And I said, look, I'm not going to do the I was afraid, I was cold stuff. Mm-hmm. I will do here's what I was thinking and here's the logistical challenge and here's the missteps. But I'm not going to go into an emotional rendering uh, or even a physical, to some degree, maybe, yeah, I, trying to avoid eye infections and stuff like that, that might be mildly interesting, but I don't want to go a step further. And that's where we came down as a comfortable middle ground. I think they were right. I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I say that now having heard from a lot of readers who say, you allowed me as a reader to understand you a little bit and therefore relate to you and trust you a little bit on your thought process without becoming a distraction from who you were talking about. And similar to your point, the the narrator becomes a bridge for the reader to the subject matter and the subject sources might be taking suffering or experiences that are much worse. And Libya was a similar thing. The first draft we wrote didn't even include our captivity. Mm -hmm. It was an epilogue. And the editor, (laughs) incredibly smart editor at the New Yorker, this guy named Namal said, hey, that's not going to work. Like you you have to, you guys were taken... And so we sort of inched towards integrating it, but only after I said, okay, so long as it's not voyeuristic, so long as we are very clear that the one thing that came out of this captivity was a small window on the impunity and the brutality and the unpredictability of this system of detention that exists in Libya, we got a little taste of it. Like if we can make that the framing of our captivity and it's a quick thing that doesn't take away from the 10,000 word story about Aliu Conde, then I'm game. And they said, bingo. Well, I'm kind of trembling over here at, at the thought that I almost didn't press record at the start. Of the <laughs> <laughs> that was a close one. I can't shake this feeling of near catastrophe. That's <laughs> the danger we face here at Book Dreams. <laughs> exactly. It's a severe, life-altering, emotional risk. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your understanding. <laughs> In my own very small way, I'm struggling now with the issue that Ian raised about putting himself in the story. Normally at this point in the podcast, we would share our reactions, you know, how it felt to hear about Ian's experience in Libya, how it felt not to have known about it in advance and been prepared to discuss it in a thoughtful way. Embarrassing, by the way, in a word, it felt embarrassing. Yes, I second that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And usually we would talk about how it feels to think about what's happening on the two thirds of the earth covered by water and about the life and death of men at sea like Errol Andrade. At the same time, you know, talking about my reactions in this context feels just inadequate, particularly because I haven't begun to figure out what to do with my reactions. So I want to emphasize instead that there is a tremendous amount to learn from, react to, and grapple with in the Outlaw Ocean book and project about the high seas, about human nature, and the potentially devastating consequences of capitalism in the absence of just and enforced governance, about investigative journalism and compelling nonfiction writing, about courage, and about suffering. 
we encourage you to read the book and, you know, as we should have done earlier, <laughs> take a look at the ongoing reporting of Ian and his team. Ian said that their next project is a series about the Chinese distant water fishing fleet. He was scheduled to head back to sea right about now to take a look at the human rights, environmental, geopolitical, and other concerns involved with this fleet. So we can all look for his reporting about that in the future. I hope we have a chance to talk to him about it someday. And that, I think, is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Ian at theoutlawocean.com and on Twitter at Ian underscore Urbina. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to book dreams with Julianne.